Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33. The Bible, if you've studied it at all in your life, or for any amount of time, you know the Bible is a book of layers. That you can read over and over and over the same passage and find new meaning every single time. So we're going to study through the whole Bible. That's my intention, if, if the Lord allows it. And by the time we get to Revelation chapter 22, we're going to turn right around and go back to Genesis and study it again. Why? Because it has so many layers. And we've seen, even as we've been studying through Genesis and Exodus, we've been jumping all around, going back and forth, New Testament and Old, to all sorts of different scriptures. And sometimes we see the same scripture two, three weeks in a row. But it has completely different meaning and context and depth to it. That is the power of a word that is living and active, as the Hebrew writer says. The Bible is alive. This is the book that is filled with His Spirit. God speaks to us through the Word, by His Spirit, in powerful ways. And tonight we're going to delve even deeper into Exodus chapter 33. You may recall Sunday, we took a look at a good chunk of it as we studied a little bit, but we're going to see some things that we completely missed. Some things that I didn't see the first time through as we studied this chapter tonight. What we saw on Sunday was that God said, I'm not going to go up with you anymore. This is immediately following the golden calf, and the Lord says, I'm done. If I go up with you, I might wipe you out. And then we see, of course, that wonderful promise toward the end of the chapter where God comes back and says, okay, my presence will go with you. And we talked about how we need His presence, how we desire His presence. And it's amazing to me the kindness of God that even after the sin of Israel, even after everything that they had done, in all the violations of the law and in all the sin with the golden calf, he still, he still says, all right, my presence will go with you. I don't know about you, but I don't have that kind of patience. I don't have that kind of kindness to do all that God had done for this people and then for them to turn on him like they did, and yet he still forgives. That's an amazing amount of kindness. And kindness is very definitely in God's character. However, His kindness is not just a matter of character. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see tonight in this first section that we're going to study with the high school students, and I want you guys especially to really catch this, this is something that I wish I had known when I was in high school, going into college. I wish I had understood this. But God's kindness has a holy objective. The reason why he does what he does and the way he goes about what he goes about has a holy objective. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. He says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Repentance. And that's a key to his kindness. Father, as we study these things, I do ask again that your spirit would lead us and guide us. That you would help us to understand the process into which we go when we decide to repent, when we choose to repent before you. And what repentance really means. And Father, beyond that, as we study on tonight, what it means to be right with you. Help us to understand these things. And Spirit, teach and speak and give us energy and give us ear and give us focus, Father. So that we can see the glory that you reveal before us here tonight. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very simply tonight, a two-part outline. The first part that you guys are going to get is the repentance of the people. The repentance of the people. The second part is the rightness of Moses. But first, the repentance of the people. I'd like you to keep a finger in Exodus 33 and flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
2 Corinthians 7, 8. Interesting, we have two letters in the Bible, 1 and 2 Corinthians, that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. But it's believed by scholars that he wrote at least three and probably four letters that we don't have. All that maintained, all, all that remained over the, over the years was the first letter and this, the second, what well, we have, 2 Corinthians, may be actually the third or the fourth letter. Because in between the first one and the second one, there, there was another letter written, apparently that was very scathing in its content. Where Paul lowered the hammer. Now, 1 Corinthians, he gets on the people a bit. But the letter that's missing, the letter that we don't have in Scripture, that God, for his, because of his sovereign will, chose not to put in there, is a letter that apparently really upset some people in Corinth. Really ticked them off, really hurt some feelings. Paul dug deep and caused quite a bit of sorrow. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he refers now back to this letter. He says, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Hang on just a second. Realize this. God at times will cause you to be sorrowful. Will push you into a place of sorrow. And so if you're ever in a church and the teaching is that God is all about happy and everything's just groovy with God and life will always get better with God, I'm telling you that church is missing the point. The teaching is missing what the Bible tells us. Yes, there's great joy in the Father, but He will drive you to sorrow at times if that sorrow is godly. Look at what Paul says, verse 10. He says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow that leads to repentance, a godly sorrow, we need to understand something about repentance. It is not an instantaneous act. Repentance isn't something we do. We hear a message on a Sunday morning and go, Oh, that's for me. I repent. Someone says something in a sermon or a Bible and you go, oh, I've got to go forward and repent. That's not repentance. Repentance, according to Scripture, is a process that God drives us into. And if we just snap our finger and say, I repent, and go out to lunch, we haven't repented. Because repentance comes from and involves sorrow. Repentance should hurt. It's not about psychologically unloading guilt. That's not what repentance does. Repentance is not about abandoning conscience, as psychologists will encourage people to do. It's not about ignoring the sin nature that we all wrestle with. Okay, I repent, now what? Repentance is a process that we must enter into. And if we don't enter into the process of sorrowful repentance, we don't completely understand the depth of the love of God. We miss how powerful truly His grace is. If we just fly into repentance without thinking about what we're doing and why we're there. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So a couple of things to jot down about repentance and this process. Number one, and I've already said it, repentance requires godly sorrow. Repentance requires godly sorrow. Now back to the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verse 1. Exodus 33, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite. 
the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. Because you're an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You're an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What's the deal with the ornaments? The ornaments were jewelry. As we've talked about before, earrings specifically were a sign of idolatry, at least back in this day. And jewelry that was worn, necklaces, bracelets, anklets, earrings, it was all a sign of idol worship. And the people wore these because it's what they were used to wearing in Egypt. And God said, put them off. I've had enough of your idolatry. The golden calf was one big fat ornament and we're done with this. I will send an angel before you. I'm not going myself, but you put off your ornaments. You put away your idolatry. You stop doing what you're doing. And the Lord begins teaching the people of Israel about godly sorrow. As he withdraws his presence, as he drives them into this place, Kyle and Delich in their commentary on the Old Testament write the following. They say, The people obeyed this commandment, renouncing all that pleased the eye. They entered formally into a penitential condition. It was an ongoing thing. It wasn't just a one-time turnaround, dump them off, and then move on. But it was ongoing penitential condition. From that time forward, they write, after the occurrence of this event at Horeb, Mount Sinai, they laid aside the ornaments which they had previously worn and assumed the outward appearance of perpetual penitence. The removal of their jewelry revealed a people in sorrow. Sorrow. Godly mourning. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, going back over there, verse 11 tells us, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Paul's saying, look, you've been sorrowful, you felt horrible, you were hurt, you were saddened by all that you had done, by your sin. But look at what it produced in you. He says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Repentance gain puts off pleasure in favor of sorrow. It is a sorrowful thing. It should hurt. It should be felt. It puts off personal ornamentation in favor of godly attention. A couple of great examples of this in the Bible. Daniel. Daniel was in Babylon. You remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den? The whole book of Daniel is a phenomenal story. And I've said before that Daniel, among all the people in the Bible, even including Moses, Daniel is my absolute favorite with the only exception being Jesus. Daniel is an incredible man. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we see this 70, 80-year-old man. He's been in Babylon all his life in captivity, and he's doing a little Bible study. He's reading the book of Jeremiah, and as he reads through this scroll, he realizes something. He does the math and figures out that the 70 years that God proclaimed that they would be in captivity was almost over. And Daniel breaks into mourning. Mourning. Daniel chapter 9 verse 3 tells us, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed... If anyone needed confessing, it wasn't Daniel. But Daniel understood the heart of God, and he also understood the heart of his people. He confessed. He said, Alas, O God, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. 
We have committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Daniel says, we've sinned. He goes into a place, a process of mourning as he prays this great prayer to the Lord. And by the way, it's out of this repentance of Daniel. It's out of this phenomenal prayer that we get possibly the greatest prophecy in all of the Bible. Which is at the end of Daniel chapter 9. I'll let you look that up and read it on your own. But after this, the people of Israel, they return slowly in little bits, small little remnants from Babylon to Jerusalem again. And a group of people determine they're going to try and rebuild the city and they begin with the wall. You read about that in the book of Jeremiah, or Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1, it tells us that on the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Listen gang, they had done this after the reinstitution of a feast called the Feast of Booths. For seven days, they they held this Feast of Booths. But during that seven-day period of time, you know what they did? They read the law. Amazing. All the people gathered in the courtyard, and Ezra read from the book of the law, Genesis, all the way through Deuteronomy. For seven days straight, all they did was read the law. And at the end of reading the law, which may put some Christians to sleep because they don't understand it, the people of Israel went into mourning. They cried out because they recognized their sin. They had dirt on their heads, they were wearing sackcloth, and they were praying a prayer of repentance. But it was a godly sorrow that they had. It was a good sorrow. Remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, there is a godly sorrow which is good. That leads to repentance. Not worldly sorrow which doesn't do anything for you. Not just, you know, false guilt. But truly recognizing the sin in our lives and hurting about it. And feeling it. And understanding that before a holy, awesome God, we are sinners. If you hurt before the Lord over a sin committed or over something that you've done, I would submit to you that you give it to the Lord as godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. It requires sorrow. By the way, don't... um, Don't twist this whole idea of godly sorrow around and say that if someone hurts you, they need to hurt for it. Okay? Because the point of this sorrowful repentance is not not God saying, I want you to hurt. I want you to pay for it. Then I'll feel better. See, that's kind of a human response. If I have been hurt by someone, I want them to hurt. I want them to feel it. They come to me and say, oh, I really apologize. Well, you know, sorry, but you heard me. And until you feel that, I'm not going to forgive. That's not how God's acting. That's not what He does. He doesn't just want you to hurt so He feels better. He wants you to hurt so you understand what has happened. So you understand repentance. 1 Corinthians 13.5 tells us that love does not seek its own. It's not provoked and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. The NIV says, literally, it takes no record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And God does not keep a record of wrongs simply to keep a record of wrongs. But He does drive us to godly sorrow so that we will understand how much He loves us. We need to experience the sorrow of repentance for it to take root into our hearts. This motive understood, God takes things a step further. He not only tells the people to put off their jewelry, but God puts off the people. 
When we saw this Sunday, he steps back a bit and he says, that's it, I'm done. Verse 5, the last part of the verse, he says, Put off your ornaments for you that I may know what I shall do with you. And as we saw on Sunday, this sounds oddly parental. What am I going to do with you children? You guys, I, I'm just, I gotta, I gotta think this through. I gotta decide what I'm gonna do with you because I am so ticked off at you right now. And if I stay around you, I'm just gonna kill you. I'm just gonna take you out. Interesting. Is it possible that God really didn't know what He was gonna do with the children? Did they really stump God in their sin? Was He surprised when He saw the dancing around the golden calf? Did He go, Oh no, what am I gonna do? Or did God know exactly what they were doing? Did God know ahead of time exactly what they would do? Of course He did. We know from the foundations of the earth God knew that man was going to sin. From the very beginning, God had a plan in place. This was not something He came up with after the fact. I've got to cover Him somehow. What do I do? Hmm, send Jesus. No, He planned it from the very beginning. So why does God say such things? Why does He make a statement like, I don't know what I'm going to do with you? Why did he talk to the people in this way? Well, Father knows best. And I submit to you that we know, again, from the beginning, he prepared a way to deal with sin. But in his infinite wisdom, God is teaching his children something about himself and about themselves. He's driving them into the gravity of the situation. The threat and removal of His presence allows Israel to feel the weight of their loss before the Lord comes back to them with forgiveness. And you're going to see God do this over and over in the life of Israel. In the history of Israel, this is how God interacts with them time and time again. Ezekiel 39 verse 28. God says, They will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again into their own land. Zechariah 12.10 tells us, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. God loves his people Israel. But God's love is eternal, not temporal. And so even early on, God gives the bitter pill of godly sorrow by putting off Israel to teach them how to experience repentance. One last thing on repentance. There's good news. Repentance requires godly sorrow, but repentance also results in joyful salvation. Flip over to Psalm chapter 30. Psalm 30. Psalm 30, verse 4. I'm just going to read a few verses to you. Listen to what the psalmist writes, what David says. Sing praise to the Lord, you godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by Your favor, You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You see the process. He's in repentance. 
He's saying, you hid your face from me and I was dismayed. Well, verse 11 he says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Why would God drive someone into godly sorrow? Because God is concerned with, as we've talked about so many times, forever. He's concerned with forever. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not what you're going to do with your life in 10 years or 20 years. He's concerned with forever. And so God will drive us into godly sorrow. And God will hide His face from us time after time as we have sinned against Him. But He does so to draw us back to Him. He does so to teach us repentance. And in these first verses, again, we see that God is leading the people into repentance. And it will continue. There's going to be more that he's going to do in this chapter. But it's so critical to God that the people of God learn what repentance means. Learn how it feels, not just something you do real quick. But I want to talk about for a few minutes now, for the rest of our time, the rightness of Moses. Not the righteousness, but the rightness. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Something that's important to know, the tent here, some versions say the tabernacle. This is not the tabernacle. This tent of meeting at this point is not the tabernacle, for you see the tabernacle has not yet been constructed. We read and studied all about it. The instructions had been given for it, but it wasn't constructed. That's going to happen beginning in, verse, in chapter 34, 35. And the rest of Exodus, the, the next five chapters to the end of the book, is all about the construction of the tabernacle. This tent of meeting is not the tabernacle. This is the tent that Moses would set up to judge, to render decisions for the people. Remember back when Moses' father-in-law came to him and said, you need some help here, you need some judges, because Moses was sitting in this tent of meeting, and everybody was coming out to him. And it was too much for him to handle. Well, that's the tent of meeting we're talking about. But it's interesting to me, the Bible tells us that Moses pitched his tent outside the camp. Why did he do that? We'll find out later the tabernacle was placed right dead center in the middle of the camp. But the people would be all around it, with it sitting in the middle. God, right among his people, but not Moses. When Moses was dealing with the people, he took it outside of the camp. Verse 8 tells us it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Verse 11 tells us, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was without question the greatest person to walk the face of the earth with the exception of Jesus. He left an indelible imprint on history. His impact for Israel greater than any of their other prophets. Again, except for Jesus, but Israel has yet to recognize Jesus as their greatest prophet. They will. But one of the reasons Moses was so elevated among his people is he knew where to go to, get what it, to do what it took to get right with God. He knew where to go outside the camp. 
He took his tent outside the camp. It wasn't in the camp. Think about the camp of Israel. I mean, imagine it just for a second. 600,000 men, we know. Add in their wives and mothers and sisters and their sons and brothers and, and, and all, all of the men, all, all the children, all the beasts. All of the hustle and bustle going on in that camp. Can you imagine the camp of Israel? I mean, from early morning until when finally the sun went down, dust flying and people moving and busyness. And if you're Moses, the leader of all the people, everyone grabbing you, everyone asking for your attention, everyone coming up and saying, Moses, we need this. Moses, we need that. Moses, there's a problem over here. No wonder he moved the tent outside the camp. No wonder Moses went over here a little distance away from all the hubbub and the hustle and the bustle. And i got to tell you, one of my favorite days of all the year is the first day of school. I love that day. We get the kids off to school. You know, we drop them off. You know, give them little hugs. Wipe little tears from their eyes. Well, not Corey anymore or Hannah. But then we go home. And I come into my office. I open my Bible and I just sit there. I love it. It's so peaceful. It's so quiet. Summer's a challenging time in our household because everything's going on. And yeah, I can close my office door, but it's all right there and dad this and dad that. But September, I love September. It teaches me something, though, about what it means to get right with God. You got to get outside the camp. You can't sit there in the middle of everything and assume that you're just going to connect. You've got to get away. There is value to distancing yourself from the busyness, to turning off the cell phone, to being somewhere where the phone can't ring at all, to getting away. It's outside the camp where Moses meets the Lord face to face. In fact, verse 11 says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. Now you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. But I didn't think that anyone could see the Lord's face and live. And doesn't the Bible tell us that clearly? John 1.18 does say no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So Jesus explains God, but no one has seen God. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that He alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. But you know the answer to this. Jesus said it. John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So what are we talking about? Who is it that Moses has seen when the Lord spoke to him face to face? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. Again, John said in 118, John 118, that Jesus has explained him. I love that word explained there. It's the Greek word exegiomai, where we get our word exegesis. What exegesis means is to dig in and to figure out exactly what is the internal meaning of the scriptures. To take a passage and to exegete it means to get into it and explain it and understand it and know what it says. And the Bible tells us, Jesus says, that's exactly, that's what I do. I explain the Father. I reveal the Father. Jesus is the visible representation of God. He has explained Him in the most tangible, face-to-face way possible. And so, I believe Moses, when he saw the Lord and talked to Him face-to-face as to a friend, was talking to Jesus. 
Now listen closely, because the rightness of Moses was not something that he developed, again, in the camp of the Israelites. Forty days. Forty days he remained up on Horeb the first time. Forty days. He didn't come back down. And the people are down there and they're saying, where is he? What's he up to? What are we paying him for anyway? Come on, Moses. And then after the great sin, he goes back up the mountain 40 more days to be with the Lord and to get things right. And what did he do then when he came back to the camp? He packed up his gear. It's an interesting phrase. It says that... uh, Verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand. And it tells in verse 7, he used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. So every morning, here's Moses. He gets up all his gear, his tent pegs, his tie-downs, his Coleman lantern, his foldable canvas chair, and he makes for the outskirts of the camp. It's the rightness of Moses. The rightness of Moses. Again, I didn't say the righteousness of Moses. I said the rightness of Moses. The rightness. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to him face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Deuteronomy 34.10 tells us, Since that time no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Listen, the rightness of Moses was locational. It was locational. Moses was right with God, and I don't mean right as in correct or pure or holy. I mean right there. He was right there with God. The rightness of Moses is the fact that he was right where God was. With God. Talking to God. He left the camp to be with God. He rose up to the top of the mountain to spend time with God. Back up the mountain to be with God. That is the rightness of Moses. How can a person get right with God? You can begin by getting right with Him. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a locational issue. And so I want to ask you the question, where do you go to get right with God? Where do you go to get right with Him? Not right, but right with Him. Where there aren't those distractions. Again, I believe we can take a clue from Moses here. Pitch your tent outside the camp. There is value in finding a place and going somewhere where you can be away and nobody can talk to you or reach you except the Lord. Nobody can tap on your shoulder. Nobody can call up your phone except the Spirit. I have spiritual attention deficit deficit disorder, and I believe most of us do. You know the one one I'm talking about where you're you're sitting there and you go, okay, now I'm going to read. Now I'm going to get into the Scriptures. And you start to read, and you're reading, and and you go, wait a minute, where was I? I did that, okay. Or someone's praying. Especially love this on a Sunday morning when someone's praying and they're going on and on. And they are right with God. And I'm going, what did they say? I miss that. I have to turn off my cell phone when I study. By the way, if you call me on a Tuesday or Thursday and you're wondering why you can't reach me for four or five hours, I'm there. I'm just ignoring the phone. Because if I stop, I, I completely lose it. I don't know where I was. I come back and it takes me 15 minutes just to get back to where I was before. When I pray, when I pray, i got to get out of the office. I gotta wait until it's quiet or go wander off somewhere because I get so easily distracted. At least I've got to close myself off where I can only be reached by the Spirit. And again, I return to this verse. It's one of my favorites. Isaiah 30, verse 15. For thus the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust 
is your strength. And I can guarantee you guys, I know, I know when my heart isn't right with the Lord, when I haven't been right with the Lord because I'm tired. Because my strength is sapped more easily. Because I don't have the ability to just deal with the day in and day out. Those are the days where I recognize the time spent with the Lord has been lacking. It's interesting. The people. The people, it tells us, would arise and stand and gaze after Moses. Boy, they were intrigued by Moses. They were interested in Moses. They saw him doing his thing, going out to that tent. And then they saw the pillar come down and wow, they were so impressed by all this. And so the Bible tells us that they would worship each at the entrance of his tent. Each at the entrance of his tent. That's, that's where they stayed. That's where they stood. Again, the people were amazed by Moses and, and this relationship. But notice, no one went out to experience the Lord for themselves. They stayed there at their tents. They worshipped from the entrance of their tents. They just stayed home and watched Joyce Myers and figured they could get it that way. They didn't leave to go out and see the Lord face to face for themselves. And there's something here. Because I think an awful lot of people gaze after someone else's experience with the Lord. Look at other Christians, other followers of the Lord and say, Ooh, ah, wow. Boy, I wish I was more like that person. I wish I had the relationship that so-and-so has. Oh, they're so close to the Lord. They're so godly. Well, let me tell you something here. Your experience, your relationship with the Lord is not intended to be experienced through someone else. Rightness with the Lord is not vicarious. It's victorious. It's not something that you watch happen to other people. It's something God wants to invite you into to experience for yourself. Now, I love the movies. Any of you know, who know me know that. I love a good film. I love to sit down in the evening and just watch a movie. Because it takes me places I haven't been. It shows me people that I've never seen before. I like getting into other cultures and seeing how other people think and act. And I know it's all acting in Hollywood and all that. But I still enjoy it. But it's vicarious. It's not real life. It's like video games. Same thing. All this vicarious experience. Isn't it amazing that technologically in the world right now, how hard Satan has worked to give us vicarious experiences of life? How many junior high, high school, college age students, and oh, they're gone. I'll tell them this later. How many young people in the world today are so enraptured with computer gaming, and yet it's not real. It's not life. Man, go climb a mountain. Well, I can climb it right here. (laughs) And yet there are a lot of people who live their Christian life that way. Vicarious Christianity. Living it through someone else. Experiencing it through another person. Watching how someone else does it with God and just going, wow, isn't that great? And God's saying, it could be for you. You don't have to be vicarious. You can be victorious in the Lord. It is a subtle thing, gang, that happens among Christians when we begin to live our faith vicariously through others. James says this, James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now this passage has sparked all kinds of flames of faith versus works debates in the church. But that's not what James was talking about. He wasn't trying to set up, well, is it faith or is it works? That's not the deal at all. James is simply saying, are you actively living out your faith? If you are, I can see your faith. Is your faith something that's as tangible as your behavior? If it's not, I've got to ask, do you have faith? Because faith, by definition, gang, will cause us to act. Faith, by definition, is going to affect our lives. It's going to drive us to victory. Faith is not going to allow you to sit and watch someone else's faith. Not true faith. James would ask, are we living out our faith? Is it evidence in our experience? Or is it all taught and no walk? Lots of people are intrigued by the Lord and impressed by those Christian servants who really step out in faith, who go out to the tent, who speak to the Lord. And they stand in their tents themselves in the doorway and they worship and they go, ooh, ah, isn't he great? Isn't it wonderful what the Lord is doing for him or for her? Back in the 90s, Henry Blackaby wrote a book. I'm sure many of you have gone through it, Experiencing God. A book and a handbook. And it's a great Bible study. But I really wondered, I went through it myself, and it had a great impact on me. But I wonder how many people have gone through the Experiencing God thing in the 90s only to not have their lives affected or changed at all. Still living vicariously as opposed to Victoriously, That book sold millions of copies, but how many lives were radically altered because people actually stepped up and said, I am going to live by faith. Roland and Heidi Baker are a couple that I've come to learn a few things about. Missionary couple, Mozambique, talk about a couple living by faith. I was telling Barb, we were flipping the channels, and um, <coughs> Barb and Rod know them and shared with Cheryl and I about them we were flipping the channels a couple couple weeks ago and we came to the 700 Club and, and it was in Mozambique and there was a couple and they were talking with this couple and oh there's kids everywhere massive orphanage and, and all this amazing things that are going on so amazing that it captured the attention of the 700 Club and they sent cameras there to figure out what was going on with this couple and I kept watching and going well we're in Heidi Baker in Mozambique aren't they and Cheryl and I are watching yeah I wonder if that's them. And it was. And there's a whole half hour special on them and I was so impressed and so amazed and yet, here's the deal, gang. These are some people who are living by faith who have stepped out and said, we're going to drop everything and follow the Lord. My question is, how about you? How about me? Is it supposed to be any less for me because I'm not in Mozambique? Is it supposed to be any less for me because I'm not in Africa? Or in Asia? Is it supposed to be less because we happen to be planted right here on the northern tip of Whidbey Island? Does that mean, oh, we're in America, so our faith. Our faith is mostly going to be vicarious. See, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think God is saying to you and I right now, this week, tonight, don't live vicariously. Don't be just impressed with others. You walk out here and see me at the tent. Let's get face to face. Let's get right here together. Let's spend some time together. See what I can do in your life. Watch what will happen when I begin to work. 
Get right with me. Get right with me. There was, by the way, at least one Israelite who did go out to the tent, and you know his name. The last part of verse 11 tells us, When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, that's interesting, I didn't know a nun could have a son, but Joshua was the son of Nun, a young man who would not depart from the tent. Danny, that was a joke. You look like you weren't sure. What, what is he saying, man? Anyway, the son of Nun, you know, nuns are... Because, well, I'll talk later. We'll figure that one out. Okay. Joshua. Look at what Joshua does here. Joshua goes out to the tent with Moses. And when Moses goes back into camp, where does Joshua go? <laughs> Nowhere. Why? He doesn't want to miss a thing. He's standing right there. And one thing that Blackaby did say in his Experiencing God book that's excellent is find out what the Lord is doing and join in there. You want to experience God? Look for what He's doing. Keep your eyes open. If you see Him at work, go there. Don't just stay home in your tent. You go where God is. You see what He's doing. You engage in what God is up to. What is the Lord doing? Where is He working? Go there. Don't just sit around watching other servants of the Lord saying, ooh and ah, go out to the Lord. Back in verse 7, the latter part, everyone, it tells us, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. So there were those who went out. Not everyone in Israel stayed at the door of their tent and worshipped as Moses went by. There were those who sought the Lord. And the way to do it was to go where he was. Seek the Lord. I love this quote. John Corson once said, Every one of us is as close to God. Listen to this. Every one of us is as close to God as we want to be. You are as close to God as you want to be. Well, God seems far away from me. He seems so distant. You're as close to God as you want to be. The only thing that holds a person back from being close to God is that person. I love the Lord of the Rings and there's a scene in the very beginning of the Lord of the Rings trilogy Fellowship of the Rings where Samwise Gamgee and Frodo the two hobbits are heading out on this, on this journey together and as they're going through this cornfield they stop and Frodo kind of keeps going and he looks back and Sam isn't moving and Frodo says what's the matter Sam? and Sam says one more step one more step and I'll be further from the Shire than I've ever been in my life Frodo walks back to his friend, puts his arm around him and says, Come on, Sam. And off they go. And there are so many of us who are right in that place in our life. Man, one more step. That's further than I've ever been with God. I know from here and on back, I know this region really well. I know this is where my relationship has been very safe and comfortable with the Lord. But one more step. He's going to take me in a place that I've never been. And I'm not sure what's going to happen. And God says, That's right. So come on, come on, be with me. Revelation 22 verse 17 tells us the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, come on, go deeper. How close do you want to be? Flip over to 2 Corinthians for a moment. Again, 2 Corinthians, this time chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. We're reading beginning in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Again, Moses spoke to the Lord face to face. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earth and vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul is explaining here his apostolic ministry. He's been called as an apostle. He is now one of the big wigs in the church. And Paul describes this wonderful, highfalutin, apostolic ministry. He describes it this way. Afflicted. Perplexed. Persecuted. Struck down. Dealing with death in daily doses. And you might wonder who would choose to live such a life. But Paul also says, we're not crushed. We're not despairing. We are not forsaken or destroyed because we have the life of Jesus in us. And you might read that and think, oh yeah, Paul, that's us. That's us Christians. I've heard this passage read many times and and heard Christians listening to it go, oh yes, that's us. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. That's us. Really? Is it? Are you? Afflicted, crushed, perplexed, and despairing? I mean, does does that describe you and your life? Unfortunately for most people, the truth is, this is vicarious. We we read it about Paul and we go, that's pretty cool. But it's not actually happening in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4, he says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving for sin. Let me ask this question. Has anybody... Has anybody shed blood for their faith in Jesus? Anyone? The Hebrew writer would say, well, keep your eyes on Jesus. You're doing okay. You haven't lost any blood yet. Life may get a little tough, but how tough has it gotten? How far out are you willing to go? How many of us have blood-shedding faith? It's a little scary. And I'm not talking about the twisted view of this that would be seen in the religion of Islam where someone would strap a bomb to themselves. I'm talking about a faith that throws caution to the wind, that doesn't fear what man can do to the body, and simply says, God, show me the next step. Let's go. Let's go. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, down in verse 16, Paul says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says in chapter 5, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, hey, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, 
in this tent we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the spirit as a pledge therefore always being of good courage knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight we are of good courage I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord what is Paul driving at he is saying get out of your tent get out of your tent and come to the Lord stop living vicariously live victoriously well back in Exodus chapter 33 verse 12 goes on and Moses said to the Lord see you say to me bring up this people but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me moreover you have said I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight now therefore Moses prays I pray you if I have found favor in your sight let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight consider too that this nation is your people and he said my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest well then Moses said to, him, said to him if your presence does not go with us do not lead us up from here for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight I and your people is it not by your going with us so that we I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth and the Lord said to Moses watch this I will also do this thing of which you have spoken for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name there's a subtlety here that I completely missed on Sunday something that, that I didn't even see another layer that we need to notice did you catch it here? look at verse 14 and listen with a little emphasis here God said my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest who's, who's God talking to? Moses God is not promising his presence for Israel. He's promising it for Moses. I'll go with you, Moses. You will have my presence. I'll give you rest. And we know this because verse 15, Moses says, If your presence does not go with us, <laughs> do not lead us up from here. For how can it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people on the face of the earth? See what Moses is doing? Lord, I appreciate that your presence is with me. I appreciate that you'll give me rest. But don't forget about your people. What about all of us? God's answer is amazing. I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. Okay, Moses. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'll do this too. My presence is with you, but I'll send my presence with Israel as well. Why, Lord? Because of you, Moses. Because of you. I have, you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by name. Remember someone else who found favor in the sight of the Lord? A man named Noah? Noah and seven other people who were saved because they found grace favor in the eyes of the Lord. And here the Lord is looking at Moses and saying, You have my favor. And because you have my favor, I will do this thing for you, Moses. I will send my presence with the people. Moses has this mediator's shepherd's heart. It's, possible, it's powerful. It's amazing. 
Moses loves his people so much he keeps putting himself on the line and finally God gives in to Moses. God knew he would. Remember, who was it that put Moses there in the first place? It was God. Who was it that put it on Moses' heart to love the people so much? It was the Lord. Who set up this mediator for Israel? It was God. But again, as we said on Sunday, remember that this mediator is a type. He prefigures Jesus. Now, I need to say this and be clear about this. We talk all the time about literal Bible study. About as we go through the scriptures, that we don't read into the scriptures anything that's not already there. We take the Bible at face value. But you may have noticed several times as we've gone through Genesis and Exodus that I've stopped and said, Hey, this is a type of Jesus. Hey, he prefigures Christ. Hey, here's a picture in the tabernacle of Jesus. Why do we say those things? It's not just because we're guessing at them. It's because the Bible says them. It's because somewhere else in the scriptures or right there, it is made very clear that this is a shadow of this. And Moses was the one who said, Another prophet like me, will be sent to you, Israel. Speaking of Jesus. And again, we compared them on Sunday, and if you weren't here, let me, I'm going to run down this list really quickly. I did this on Sunday. Take me about 30 seconds. But Moses and Jesus were so similar. Moses and Jesus were both Jews at birth. Moses and Jesus were both born in a time of bondage for Israel. Moses and Jesus were both born under the threat of a bloody ruler. Moses and Jesus both rejected by their brethren. Moses fasted 40 days on Sinai. Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness. Moses became a shepherd in Midian and then a shepherd of the people. Jesus is the good shepherd. Moses was raised to liberate his people. Jesus was raised to liberate all people. Moses was the first miracle worker in the Old Testament. Jesus is the first miracle worker in the New Testament. Moses will eventually send out 12 spies to spy out the land. Jesus' 12 disciples. If you'd like these and you're not able to write fast enough, I can use a copy of this. Moses had 70 elders. Jesus had 70 followers that he sent out. Moses washed the feet of Aaron and his sons. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Moses went up Sinai and came back glowing. Jesus went up Mount Hermon and came back glowing. Was transfigured on the top of the mountain. Moses was there for that as well. Moses built the tabernacle. Jesus, as the Bible tells us, is the tabernacle. Moses died before the people could go into the promised land. Jesus died before the people go into the promised land so that we could go into the promised land. Moses was seen after his death in the promised land at the transfiguration. Jesus was, of course, seen in the promised land after his death as well. And finally, Moses was the mediator of an unworthy people. Jesus Jesus is the mediator for all people. All people. And like Israel, God grants us his presence because of the mediator. Moses found favor in the sight of God, and so God said, All right, I will do this for you. My presence will go with Israel. Jesus is the mediator for us. And it is because of Jesus that God guarantees, promises his presence goes with us. What's the big deal? The big deal is, if you for a second think it has anything to do with your personal righteousness, you're way off. And you need to go back to what we talked about at first tonight. You need to repent. You need to approach the Lord with godly sorrow and say, it's not about me, is it? It's not about how good I am, and it's not about how bad I am. 
It's about the mediator who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said again, John 5.42, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The Bible says, As a man speaks to his friend, so Moses spoke face to face with the Lord. That is our Lord Jesus. But so can we. So can we. It's rightness, proximity with the Lord. One last thing to notice about the rightness of Moses. Verse 18 tells us, Moses says, I pray you, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God's glory is nothing like our glory. Psalm 103 verse 15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 7, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, the word of our God, stands forever. And you want to know the fastest way? The fastest way to tell if a celebrity is passe. Ask the junior higher. You'll know instantaneously if a celebrity is completely outdated. I'll never forget the time when I was working with kids in youth ministry, and this was like ten years ago, and I mentioned in a Bible study the Eagles. And three or four of the junior high kids were like, Who? Who's that? Now this is before they went back out on tour to try and raise a little bit more money for themselves, but they didn't even know who the Eagles were. I'm like, oh, okay. Now I'm starting to feel old. Man passes like that. And the person who is at the top of his game today can just as easily tomorrow be completely forgotten who talks about Michael Jordan anymore. Greatest basketball player to ever play the game... But who talks about him? He's out. He's not playing. He's not the deal. Air Jordans are not the highest rated shoe anymore. Give me something that's current, that's relevant. Man fades, but God's glory doesn't fade. You may recall the Hebrew word for glory here is kabod. The transliteration is spelled C-H-A-B-O-D. Kabod. And the glory of God, when Moses says, show me your glory, what he is asking for is heaviness. Because kabod means heavy. It means weighty or substantive. And I need to ask you this question. What is the opposite of substance? It's emptiness, isn't it? Moses says, show me your glory, your substance. Which is why without the Lord, all life ultimately results in emptiness. Without Jesus, without the Lord, life becomes nonsensical, useless. A waste. Boring. You can try thing after thing to find some sense of purpose in what you're doing and yet without Jesus, without the substance, the weight of glory that only belongs to the Father, you'll never find it. But if I want to fill my emptiness, if I want to satisfy my hunger, it only comes from the substance of the glory of the Lord. How do I get that? How do I do it? Look at Moses. Ask for it. Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God responded to this desire in a powerful way. Max Lucado wrote, he said, asking for God's glory is asking for more of God himself. This is what Moses was doing. I have your presence with me. I have this promise. I now have you promising me you're going to have your presence with the people too because you found favor with me. But I want more. 
I want more. I mentioned Roland and Heidi Baker before for a reason. Barb and I were talking about Heidi and she had said in a recent email that she wanted more of the Lord. And I thought your reaction was, was interesting. Barb was like, she wants more of the Lord? I just want what she's got. But see, here's Heidi Baker in this place of Moses. And that's what happens. The more you experience God, the more you want of God. Show me your glory. Give me some substance. I want more of you. You know what? Sunday morning and Wednesday night, it's not enough. It's not enough. Some Bible studies here and there, it's not enough. Prayer time, it's not enough. I want more. I want more. And God's like, great. Because there's plenty to go around. You can't even hold how much weight and heaviness of the glory of God there is to be given out. Show me your glory. Again, God responded to this desire in a way Moses could not possibly have imagined. Show me your glory, Moses said. And John said in 1.14, we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. In 1 Peter 5.10, Peter writes, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And Jude 24 says, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy. My question is, how close do you want to be? How close do you want to be? You are as close to God as you want to be. Father, show us your glory. Show us your glory in our lives, in this church, in this fellowship. Father, I pray that you would raise this barn with your glory. That we would have experience of you like we have never had before. And Father, I pray that the weight of your glory would rest on us in such a way that we would not be satisfied to stay back in our own tents, but to go out and to be with you, to see what you're doing, to engage in the process of repentance if need be, Father, and to be right with you. Show us your glory. Father, there is disease that needs healing. Show us your glory. There are wounds that need restoration. Show us your glory, Lord. There are lives that are so pitifully lost right now that need saving. Show us your glory. And I pray that we might simply be reflectors of this glory. God, we know the glory faded from Moses as he came out from the tent. That he would glow for a while, your glory remaining on him, but... It would fade. And we ask for the unfading glory that only comes from you. Show us your glory. I don't just pray this for tonight, Father. I pray this for the rest of our days. I pray that you would shake us out of ourselves, out of our petty concerns and worries, and show us your glory. Father, give us just enough that we would be starving if, not, if we would not have more. 
show us your glory. Lead us into victory in Christ. We pray for impact on our lives, the lives of our friends, our family, and those who don't know you in ever-increasing ways. As the scriptures say, moving from glory to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.